If Missouri Democrats want to succeed in statewide elections, they'll need to maximize voter turnout in the 1st Congressional District. And one man who has a big say over whether that will happen is Congressman Lacey Clay. The Democrat joins us from Washington, D.C. on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair yes, to I say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. And joining us from Washington, D.C., we have the congressman from the 1st Congressional District... Lacey Clay. (laughs) Thank you very much for, for joining us. We are almost finished having the entire Missouri congressional delegation on the show. We just need Sam Graves, Billy Long, and Vicki Hartzler, and we've got them all. Yes, and, oh, and and the senator and Senator Roy Blunt. But uh, you are you are you are helping us complete the. I was going to say trifecta, but it's more like an octafecta <laughs> because there's eight congressmen. Um, well, that covers the house <laughs> anyway. So, so for our listeners, um, uh, the congressman has a long political history. He was in the Missouri House, he was in the Missouri Senate, and he recently won a Democratic primary for the first congressional district for. What is this, your eighth or ninth victory in the Democratic primary at this point? This was my ninth. I'm running for my ninth term. And so on November 8th, uh, we expected a a pretty huge victory uh, uh, out of the first congressional district. And, you know, I was so humbled uh, by the the huge margin of victory. Uh, on August the second, a thirty-six point landslide. Uh, we carried every ward in the city of St. Louis and every township within the first congressional district in St. Louis County. And I got to ask you about that because there was almost like a two-year run-up to this uh, election between you and State Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal. What was kind of your perception of not only the election itself, but the the long run up to it, which I'm sure that you you have some perspective on. Well, and here, here's what I I thought all along was that you know 2012 election between Carnahan, a one city member of Congress, to the other, uh, really kind of showed showed my metal, I think. Absolutely. And so for um, for this, this this effort, I was never. Um, I was I, I, I never felt really challenged because um, in order to to run and win successfully uh, a congressional race, all of the pieces of the puzzle have to be together. That means your fundraising uh, and your uh, your organizational skills, as well as the incumbent has 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 to have done something. Um, so egregious that the, that the people want to turn him out, and so none of those components were there. And 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 I'm and I'm being a a student of politics. We knew that going in my my organization, and so we were not. We never really felt threatened by Maria. Uh, we we knew that the. Uh, that she was loud, but loud does, did not translate into leadership. 
And so we were pretty confident about uh, August. And, and I think it proves once again the depth and diversity of my support across the region. And it shows the power of my political organization to reach out to voters and to turn out to vote on Election Day. And that's what it comes down to, working hard, asking the people for, for their vote, and giving them a reason to vote for you, like, like my record of service to them, like bringing in a $2 billion project and saving those 3,100 jobs at NGA, uh, or, or, or actually having a record of cleaning up toxic waste sites. And, and so people can see through uh, uh, these paper-thin resumes like, like both of my opponents had. Now, um, going into the general election, and the congressman knows all this, so some of this is for our listeners. Um, in, I mean, it, some would say that arguably your general election may be not as challenging as your primary just because of the makeup of the first district being overwhelmingly Democratic. But the whole ticket in the state relies heavily on the first district and the fifth district, which is on the other side of the state. Uh, sure. For it's not just uh, percentage that they vote um, Democratic, but it's the volume. And I've seen this in different elections. If the volume's not there, then statewide Democrats may not do so well. I'm interested in your take on how you think things look. I mean, like in 2008, the volume in the first and the fifth, for example, was gigantic, sure. and that really. While uh, Barack Obama didn't carry the state, he almost did. And, sure. the, and there are some who claim that actually there was uh, problems in the polling places or he would have. Now, fast forward eight years. Um, is Hillary Clinton generating that kind of enthusiasm or is there anybody else on the ticket? Or is the Democratic Party um, uh, encouraging you or offering extra resources to make sure that they get this big turnout in the in the first and the fifth, because the the rest of the statewide ticket may well depend on what happens there. I'm just interested in your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And and I was first of all, I was with Secretary Clinton last week, uh, and I told her at that time that I was happy to go anywhere and do anything possible to help her win this, and I think she will win. Um, but we have some work to do to pump up the enthusiasm in our core constituency and get this vote out. And I'm confident that we will be able to do that. Uh, There is, as you mentioned, there is an enthusiasm gap here compared to 2008 and 2012. Uh, And and, um, in Missouri, we have some work to do to turn our state blue again. Um, but I'm ready for the fight, um, and we have too much at stake in this election for anyone to stay home. Now, here's where um, um, where Missouri falls short, I think, is that um, the statewide candidates and uh, have to begin to speak to the electorate that they want to uh, um, uh, turn out for them. In other words, they have to start speaking to the issues that are relevant to millennials and to the African-American community. And, and some of those issues are criminal justice reform, um, 
um, quality education, uh, uh, economic opportunities, uh, and and jobs. And, and so, um, if 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 you don't want to speak to those issues, or, or talk to us about um, common sense uh, gun legislation, and and talk to us about your opposition uh, to to photo ID requirements, which is just another form of a of of a poll tax on poor people in the state of Missouri. And if you if you're not addressing those issues, then it's gonna be much more difficult to get people interested in coming out to vote for you. And I'm talking about statewide candidates who embrace um the NRA or or who who don't bother to talk directly to a constituency whose votes they won at about a ninety percent clip, and so if you if you don't do that, uh, then you're not going to be successful on election day. Well, I gotta ask because I mean I think that's a a reference to Attorney General Chris Coster. And when we've talked at press conferences before, you have not been very hesitant to criticize his position, especially on guns. I mean, the other aspect is the lieutenant governor in that race is Russ Carnahan, a person mm-hmm. that you ran against four years ago. I mean, w- with that in mind, is there a lot of enthusiasm on your part to make sure somebody becomes governor who has a lot of policy positions that you disagree with and somebody who becomes lieutenant governor who you were a political rival with four years ago? Okay, and, now, and let's start with the lieutenant governor's candidate, uh, yes. Russ Carnahan. You know, after 2012, uh, we uh, repaired our relationship. Uh, and, and, and my position is always, hey, after the election is over, the people have made that decision. And in this case, uh, we were victorious. And so I moved on. We, we are cordial. We talk. Uh, we, we, are, we are collaborating on this race. Just like I'm talking with Robin Smith, uh, and uh, at times talking to Jason Gander, uh, have have met um, uh, Hensley, who's running for the, the Attorney General. So um, we are collaborating. Uh, don't talk much to Coster. Uh, we, we're cordial, uh, but uh, I, I mean, look, uh, we. The African American vote, and in particular in the first CD, we make up close to 20% of the statewide Democratic vote, is not going to be taken for granted. You have to, you have to speak uh, to our needs and to our issues, or else you're going to have an enthusiasm gap. And it's no, and no, the days of just going out voting a straight Democratic ticket are over. You have to address our needs. The, the millennials, for instance, they want to hear their candidates like Clinton, like Coster, talk about college affordability. Talk about how you're going to lower the cost of tuition. How you're going to help them get out of student loan debt and how you're going to reform the criminal justice system. And if you aren't speaking to that, then they don't have any interest in uh, uh, going out and voting for you, and I don't blame them. 
So has Coster, are there certain things that you think that he so far has really failed to do? Or, I mean, has he called you? I haven't seen him do a whole lot in the St. Louis area yet, but it might be um, just the timing of, of, of where he does what. But I'm interested in your take on that. More since- about Custer uh, feeling as though uh, black people have nowhere else to be but and but vote for him, and so therefore the, he doesn't have to uh, directly speak to them. And I think it's wrong. And and I think that um, and and any and all the candidates up and down the ballot, if you don't think. You have to speak to an entire segment of the electorate, uh, then you will be proven wrong. Now, um, is there a particular issue that I mean, is it guns or whatever that you really think Coster's been just off the mark? Uh, well, it, it's it's not about me versus Coster. It's not what this is about. Uh, I just think that. Uh, Coster needs to understand that, look, in the city of St. Louis, in the St. Louis region, in Kansas City, uh, those local jurisdictions have a problem uh, with gun violence, which, which means that that threatens the, the health and safety of the community. Uh, and to, to just blanketly say, oh, everyone uh, should, should be okay carrying concealed without training, uh, and, and, and expanding the castle doctrine, uh, that, so that, uh, outside of your home, if you feel threatened by someone, uh, it would, you're, you're within your rights to shoot and kill this person. I think it's wrong. And, and so, and, and, and so that's an issue that we differ on. And I can't agree with you. And I can't agree with with the with the majority of the legislature who overrode the governor's veto on that issue, uh, because it is about the health and safety of the people that I represent. Somewhere in rural Missouri, it's probably fine that you carry concealed, but in an urban setting where we already have issues with violence, where we already have the proliferation of guns in the hands of the wrong people, uh, those local jurisdictions should be able uh, to pass ordinances, to pass laws that better protect those the, the people that live there. I want to shift gears to another political situation that you were involved in recently, the 78th District House seat, which was won in a special election by Bruce Franks. Um, you were a supporter of Penny Hubbard, the state representative, but before the show you told me that you have spoken with Bruce Franks. I want to know, A, why you got involved in that race, and B, what that conversation was like and what the relationship is going to be like with him going forward. Okay, well, well, look, first of all, I want you to know that um, I believe in in, and defer to incumbency. That's how I was taught. Maybe I'm wrong, but but I, I, I always defer to incumbents. And then I defer to the people that have an ability to work with me. I work with Penny Hubbard uh, to secure NGA in her district. Uh, we worked hand-in-hand hand to convince the federal government that 
North St. Louis was the place to locate a $1.75 billion development uh, and to uh, turn a federal failure like Pruitt Igo into a success story like NGA. So we were allies. And I don't turn my back on on my on my friends and supporters. Uh, by the way, I have spoken with Mr. Franks and congratulated him on his victory. And I told him that I want I look forward to having a working relationship with him in the interest of our mutual constituents uh and the people of the seventy eighth district. And I never had a problem with him personally, but I strong, strongly objected to a process that threw away over 4,300 votes because the St. Louis Election Board failed to obey the law. Um, you will recall that in his ruling, Judge Burleson said that he could find no evidence of any fraudulently cast votes, but he ordered to revote based on the failure of the election board to properly encase absentee ballots in an envelope with certain information. So he threw out 4,300 votes over missing envelopes. And if you apply that same standard across the state, tens of thousands of ballots would be thrown out. So that's why I asked the the. Department of Justice to take a look at this special election because I feared that at-risk voters, particularly the elderly and the infirm, uh, who depend on absentee ballots, would be disenfranchised, and they were. In the revote, the number of votes cast dropped by over 1,000 people, and that's a shame. I and and I have always had. A zero tolerance for any kind of vote fraud. Uh, but I vote absentee sometimes. Sometimes I, in St. Louis County, I have to be in D.C. during the during the election day, so I go and vote absentee. There's nothing wrong with vote voting absentee, so don't stigmatize it. But I, I also have an, a commitment to fighting disenfranchisement of the most vulnerable voter in my own district and across this country. And sadly, the situation in the 78th State Rep District is already being used by Republican extremists to push Amendment 6 on the November 8th ballot. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that, because when I asked Bruce Franks about that in the middle of the trial, he emphasized to me that his case should not be used as a rationale for photo ID because the bill that was passed in veto session had nothing to do with absentee balloting. And he's a strong opponent of photo ID. And I mean, I got the sense that some Hubbard allies were trying to say he was a a poster child for that and was being used by Republicans when he explicitly said he doesn't support it. Did you get a sense that was the case from your conversation with him? Well, yeah, he's he is. uh... He genuinely uh, uh, is opposed to Amendment Six, but sometimes in um, in in these nefarious schemes, people are using don't realize it, and they they refer to that in the debate where they overrode the governor's veto. They use they highlighted his race, 
And so, and, and as an ex, a, as a reason to override the governor's veto of the of, of the enacting in, in law, uh, so sometimes you are inadvertently used for other people's purposes. Uh, purposes, and in this case, I think that's that's what happened. Now, do you think Amendment Six will have um, an effect on voter turnout or? I mean, there's also going to be campaign finance limits, which won't affect you because you're a member of Congress, but it would affect statewide candidates. That's going to be on the ballot. Do you think any of those issues are going to help turnout at all or hurt turnout as far as Democrats go? Well, I would hope so because I I will fight um, <laughs> Amendment 6 with, with everything that I have because I know that this photo ID requirement is nothing more than a modern-day poll tax. You know, last weekend we had the uh, Congressional Black Caucus Annual Legislative Conference, uh, and, 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 and all of this voter suppression is really just the Republican Party's coordinated strategic response to, to the new diversity of the American electorate. Uh, and and they, they, they cannot escape the math. And the map says that the that the American electorate is becoming more and more diverse. For the, in, in on November the eighth, for the first time in American history, seventy um, percent of the electorate, uh, under seventy percent of the electorate, will be white voters. The rest will be Latinos, African Americans, Asians, and other minority groups. And so that means America is changing electoral-wise, and, and, and those groups are beginning to vote their weight. And, and, and the Republicans have a hard time uh, recognizing that because they, they, they don't talk to those groups. Or if they do, it's, it's, it's very oppressive. And so, um, you know, um, the the color of America is changing, and people need to wake up and realize that. In our last topic for today, I wanted to talk about the the police shootings that have occurred in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I know that the Congressional Black Caucus had uh, a march yesterday to bring attention to that, but I've also been following from a policy standpoint both the federal and and Missouri-based legislation that that has come about in the last couple of years. And my sense is, federally, I think that there have been efforts from both you and Congressman Cleaver to pass legislation that just haven't gained a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. And in, in Missouri, there was Senate Bill 5 that dealt with, with, with traffic fines, but a whole bunch of other pieces of legislation that have been passed in other states, whether it be police databases of shootings, whether it be independent prosecutors or, or whatnot, have not gained traction in Missouri despite the attention sure. of Michael Brown. So I wanted to get your sense of, A, what you think the source of this federal and state inaction is, and B, like what the strategy you have from a federal level to move the policy needle on a lot of these issues. Well, and as you, you mentioned, um, I joined with my colleagues in the Congressional Black Caucus on Thursday to, to March to the Justice Department and I had, uh, to let Attorney General Lynch know that uh, this is too much, too many tears, too much pain, 
too many young African Americans interacting with local police and winding up dead. You know, two years later, it's clear that the lessons of Ferguson have not yet been learned across this country. Uh, in response to the tragic events in Ferguson and the findings of the Ferguson Commission and the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, um, I, I introduced legislation to transform the relationship between local law enforcement and the citizens that they are sworn to protect. Now, let me let me let you in on a, uh, some little-known um, facts, and that is that the the Congressional Black Caucus has appointed five people to a task force in conjunction with Speaker Paul Ryan, who has appointed five of his members from the Republican uh, Conference to this task force to come up with legislation uh, that will transform policing in this country, uh, that will ad address um, um, how police departments should be more diverse, uh, how they should be trained on diffusing situations, uh, and, and how uh, they should be allowed to, uh, uh, they should be incentivized to wear body cameras. Uh, we we think that the, those are the recommendations, some of the recommendations of the president's 21st century task force on policing, uh, and I have incorporated it into legislation. And um, th that legislation is under consideration, serious consideration by uh, the majority leadership of the House as well as uh, members of the Democratic Caucus. And, and in particular, the Black Caucus. And so we are, are hopeful that before the end of this year, we will have some substantial legislation that addresses this American tragedy. Is it going to take the Democrats gaining ground in the Senate and the House and a Democratic president to actually get this across the finish line? Because as I'm sure you know, Donald Trump and a lot of Republicans have used this rhetoric about law and order and quote unquote supporting law enforcement and making this binary choice that you got to either support police to the tilt or you got to support what the protesters are saying. And I mean, someone like Bruce Franks has said that that's that's a false choice. You can support sure. law enforcement, but also support major changes to to police. I, and, but, I, but I've gotten a sense that that type of argument has really kind of really affected the, the policy debate over this, both federally and state. Is that your sense, too? And is, are Democrats just going to need to gain more grounding for this to actually go into effect? Well, it, it would be helpful if Demo Democrats gain more ground and, and, and take over the Senate, close the, the gap in the House, and hold on to the White House. Uh, but, but, but really, you know, Donald Trump has offered up this method, stop and frisk. And we all know stop and frisk in New York City was a complete failure. It had nothing to do with driving down the the, the, the uh, crime rates in New York City, but it had a lot to do with profiling hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers and violating their constitutional rights, and the federal court said that. So to, to me, Donald Trump is way off base on this. Now, I'll tell you why 
why the speaker engaged, Speaker Ryan engaged with the Black Caucus. It was after those two incidents um, with, with police officers being shot and killed in Dallas and in Baton Rouge and being targeted that they realized, the Republican leadership realized, we have to address the, the model of policing that we live under now and push to change it. Because, it, it, I mean, it doesn't help anybody when you when innocent African-Americans get shot and killed or when police are targeted and killed. And, and so we that's the way, that's why they have decided to engage us. Because they care about those police just like we do. Now, um, one of the interesting aspects of these tragic shootings this last week is that the police involved, in one case was a woman, in the other case it was an African-American. Um, so does, I guess what I'm asking is that it seems like the whole debate over police shootings has changed from just a racial aspect, which was two years ago, because uh, many of the police involved in the, like the Michael Brown shooting was white. Um, mm-hmm. So do you, do you think that the fact that we're dealing with a more, I mean, that there is... It's not. I mean, it's 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 more nuanced than you know. I, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts about whether that affects either how um, African Americans react to some of this, or what, or how Loretta Lynch deals with some of this. I'm just interested in your thoughts. Well, it has to do with uh, implicit biases that of how um, police view black motorists. Or walking while black, or and it's not just men that that they uh, feel threatened by. Sometimes it's women, and so that means that um, that police have to do a better job of training and retraining officers uh, and weeding out those who have these these biases towards black people. Black people expect to, uh, good police services just like any other American, and they deserve that. They pay taxes, too. And, and it should not be a thing of, of you going to the grocery store and winding up dead. Uh, that's just unacceptable. This is a national emergency. And that's why the, 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 um, the Black Caucus has asked Loretta Lynch to get involved and to start investigating, indicting police officers and prosecuting them and holding them accountable, accountable when they die, when someone dies at their hands who is unarmed and, and, and who has, is not a threat to that officer. Same thing with Michael Brown. Uh, they, his family and I feel he has not received justice. Um, uh, uh, Darren Wilson uh, is not being held accountable, and only because it was St. Louis County and that prosecutor, uh, McCullough, uh, I knew from the start that there would never be any accountability in this case, and it was rigged to ensure that. Now, um, looking at the end of this year, this will be the end of President Barack Obama's second term. I'm inter- and, and I'm interested in your thoughts about his overall um, uh, legacy, uh, good and bad, uh, and what his election. I mean, 
there are some who still, you know, I mean, there's still controversy about the president, even though he's been in office almost eight years. I'm just interested in your thoughts about all that. Uh, first of all, it's, it has been a pleasure uh, working with this, this man and his administration. Uh, and we have, have um, he started off as one of my friends, and he will finish his presidency as that. Uh, I couldn't be prouder of the way he has uh, withstood the criticism, uh, withstood the racism directed at him, uh, and has persevered through it all. And think about it, for more almost eight years, this administration has been pretty much scandal-free, which you couldn't say that about uh, Bush's administration. And so, um, although they have put up roadblocks and hindrances every step of the way, uh, he still accomplished a lot, whether it was through executive order or in his first two years through legislation like the Affordable Care Act, like the Lilly Ledbetter Law that pushed for equal pay for women, uh, and, and, and the initiatives that he's taken. Um, uh, like uh, providing over 20 million Americans um, affordable health care. That makes a difference in people's lives, and that'll be part of his legacy. Uh, also, I, I have to, uh, on a local um, perspective, I have to say thank you for them stepping up, his administration stepping up with Eric Holder to come in and to, and to uh, do the practices and patterns investigation and to uncover the constitutional violations of the city of Ferguson and the, and the region and to begin and, and to uh, put Ferguson under a consent decree and to begin the process of pricking the conscience of the St. Louis region and making them understand, hey, you have some... Uh, some racial, racist heritage. And it's time for you to address that and to change the environment for African Americans in the region. And so I'm thankful for that, for, for helping us start the conversation and help, and, and, and helping people realize, uh, it's so inequitable in the St. Louis region when it comes to African Americans. Uh, that's why all of those indicators are so negative and so high because of the oppressive racism of our community. Well, Congressman, we, we appreciate you coming on our show. Um, we will have to have you back on at some point in the future for, for all for sure. of our stories. Uh, STLPublicRadio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I believe oh, I believe we could follow you on Twitter at Lacey Clay Mo one Is that correct, Congressman? I believe so. Yes. Hey, uh, thank you all. Well, thank you. This opportunity. I really appreciated it. I enjoy talking to both of you, and God and, bless you. And what were you cooking? Uh, <laughs> just breakfast. Okay, okay, no, I just wanted to know if people need to know, like, your secret for omelets or something. Um, I, I may have to, to publish a, a cookbook for that. 
<laughs> well, your father's a prolific author. Maybe you could also be a pro- prolific cookbook author uh, after okay. your legislative <laughs> tenure is over. Thank you again, Congressman. Thank you.